Hi, welcome to season three of the Ace Tip Podcast, where we translate science into sense, so you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read lengthy journal articles or reports. I'm Danielle Rudes, your host, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. ASTIT is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University in Virginia. For more information, check out jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started. On September 6, 2021, beloved actor Michael K. Williams was found dead in his apartment of drug poisoning after consuming heroin laced with fentanyl. Those who sold him the drugs were already involved in an ongoing undercover sting operation. And in response to Mr. Williams' death, one police official instructed his detectives to, quote, treat this case as if Michael K. Williams was hit by a bullet, unquote. Five months after Mr. Williams' death, detectives arrested four men and prosecutors charged them with narcotics conspiracy. In a statement announcing the arrest, U.S. Attorney Damian Williams said, quote, We will bring every tool to bear. We will continue to hold accountable the dealers who push this poison, exploit addiction, and cause senseless death. This is a public health crisis, and it has to stop, unquote. The U.S. has a long history of answering social problems with retribution. And as indicated by the U.S. Attorney's assertion that it, quote, has to stop, unquote, we also make an implicit assumption that this retribution or punishment will solve the problem. We see this most clearly in our almost reflexive response to addressing harm with more harm. In response to rising overdose deaths, particularly overdose deaths from fentanyl, across the U.S., lawmakers have turned to a supply-side intervention, attempting to reduce the drug supply and deter sellers of fentanyl. Dr. Megan Peterson and colleagues investigated one such intervention, the enacting of drug-induced homicide laws in Rhode Island, which criminalize the delivery of illicit drugs that result in fatal overdose. Currently, 20 states have adopted drug-induced homicide laws, Rhode Island's drug-induced homicide law provides up to life in prison for anyone who sells, delivers, or distributes a drug that leads to a fatal overdose. While the law grants legal immunity to those who call 911 in the event of an overdose, those closest to the problem, including local advocacy groups and medical providers, are concerned that these laws may keep people from seeking help in the event of an overdose for fear of being associated with drug selling at an overdose scene. And critics note that signaling harsher policies for selling drugs does not seem to consider the complicated dynamics in which people who sell drugs often experience substance use disorders themselves. Many people who sell drugs do so to fund their own substance use rather than to profit off the substance use disorders of others. And criminalizing substance use in the United States doesn't exactly have a stellar record. While not having any positive effects on substance use outcomes, deterrence-based policies have been associated with higher rates of incarceration and negative public health outcomes, such as increased HIV prevalence among people who inject drugs. And mass incarceration, including mandatory minimum sentences for minor drug charges, has worsened health disparities among already underserved communities, particularly communities of color. But having said all that, 
there is little research on the impact of harsh criminalization on fentanyl distribution. And as we've seen with many of our other episodes, if you want to understand something, it's a good idea to go ask people closest to the problem. The perspectives of the people who use drugs are especially important, considering that they can offer insight into the dynamics of drug selling that policymakers just don't get. With that in mind, Dr. Peterson and colleagues interviewed 40 people with opioid use disorder in a medication-assisted treatment program about their attitudes and perceptions surrounding harsher punishments for drug distribution. The majority, 22 of the 40 participants, did not feel that the laws would be effective in curbing the opioid overdose epidemic. 11 participants did not clearly state an opinion, instead discussing complexities inherent to drug-induced homicide laws. One participant did not answer the question due to lack of time in the interview, and six participants felt they were ethically justified, or in other words, they are what people deserved. Those against the law spoke of the autonomy of people who use drugs, with one man noting that if he overdosed, he wouldn't want his dealer to go to jail because, quote, it was my choice. It was my option. It was my option to go to him and cop the drugs, unquote. Those against the law also noted the widespread prevalence of fentanyl and felt that given its ubiquity, it was impossible for a seller to control what was in their supply. One woman equated it to suing a grocery store because their produce has pesticides on it. She added, quote, you'd have to lock every dealer up, unquote. Participants also discussed the history of criminalization in the United States, the idea of supply and demand as driving the drug trade, and incarceration as a business. As one 36-year-old man put it, quote, one guy goes to jail, two people are ready to take a spot. It's not gonna deter nothing, unquote. He pointed to Reagan and the war on drugs as an example of the failure of this approach, adding, quote, I see it going on forever. The war on drugs is a crock. It's a business. That's all it is, unquote. And then there was the argument that often people who sold drugs did so to provide for themselves. One 36-year-old man who had previously sold drugs noted that often people who are doing it do it to, quote, help provide for their family and put food on the table just like anyone who works, unquote. Explaining that when you can't get a job with a criminal record, you turn to selling drugs, he also added, quote, like, what do you expect us to do? What they can do is give us better jobs and give us better pay. We wouldn't have to sell drugs, unquote. Participants also brought up a likely increase in reluctance to call 911 and increased use of violence on the part of sellers to avoid being caught selling drugs. But there does seem to be a fine line of moral culpability where those without a substance use disorder who knowingly sell fentanyl are viewed as having some culpability. And as one woman who said, quote, if you're out there on the street and you're selling fentanyl to these people and you know you're selling fentanyl to these people, then yeah. I think you deserve a stricter sentence because you're gambling with their life, unquote. Though she noted that a life sentence was too harsh. When discussing moral culpability, it really came down to intent. For example, a seller who knowingly gives drugs to someone with low tolerance and those who knowingly sell fentanyl but market it as heroin without fentanyl contamination should be prosecuted differently than someone who did not know what was in their supply or who was honest with a person buying from them. One participant compared selling fentanyl to someone as handing them a firearm. The 31-year-old man said, quote, people are dying. Like, that's the same thing as handing somebody a loaded gun. 
It's a loaded needle. The only difference is they're squeezing the trigger on their own, unquote. But others noted that it was unlikely that sellers wanted to kill their clients because a decreased client base would lead to reductions in income. Therefore, it was unlikely that intention in sales was malicious, as one man in his early 20s said. Quote, if you're a drug dealer, you don't want people that are buying your drugs to be dying because that's your money. And now you're going to lose that $150 to $200 a day that person brings you because now they're dead and they pay your bills. So a lot of times you don't want to be killing off your clientele, unquote. And to complicate matters further, some participants noted rare instances in which buyers seek out fentanyl. As one 22-year-old man put it, quote, I've got loved ones that died, but then people went out looking for it. Usually it's, you know, someone OD'd. Let's go get that man's badge, unquote. These findings dovetail nicely with a study by Dr. Jennifer Carroll and two colleagues, which took a closer look at the social context of people's opioid use. Through their interviews with 91 individuals with opioid use disorder, the team found that 51 of the interviewees discussed their relationships with the dealer. So the team decided to further explore that relationship. They thought perhaps there was some public health impact of these relationships, and maybe understanding these relationships could improve our responses to today's opioid epidemic. They found that in general, interpersonal relationships between individuals who use drugs and their suppliers can have a protective effect. How people meet their dealers runs the spectrum from being childhood friends to being introduced by low-level runners to walking up to a stranger in a known open-air drug market. And experiences with dealers are varied. A black man in his 60s, who's been a daily heroin user for over several decades, offered the most pessimistic view, saying, quote, a lot of people like to say that they don't have fentanyl in there. And you can't go with what they say because they'll sell rat poison if they think you'll buy it anyway. But the large majority of participants spoke about their primary dealers going out of their way to alert clients to the presence of fentanyl or even to avoid selling fentanyl-contaminated product completely. In fact, for most participants, maintaining long-term relationships with trusted dealers was a key strategy for reducing the risk of substance use-related harm. Though not universal, a sizable number of participants reported that their dealers engaged in behaviors that align with the goals of consumer protection. Things like refusing to sell fentanyl or openly communicating with clients about the presence or absence of fentanyl in their heroin. Many noted that they believe their primary dealer engaged in some sort of quality assurance, things like self-designed methods of testing heroin for fentanyl prior to selling it, seeking feedback from clients and checking in with clients post-purchase. And some dealers engaged in emergency first response, like procuring naltrexone and facilitating overdose reversal. In other words, some people who use opioids maintain generally positive relationships with their dealers, and those relationships appear to be protective against overdose and appear to foster safer substance use behaviors. Again, this is not true for everyone. But their feelings do align with those found in the 2019 North Carolina study by the team of researchers led by Dr. Blythe Rhodes. Participants in that study also reported using tested dealers as a strategy to avoid fentanyl and prevent overdose. And participants in the North Carolina study also indicated that their dealers stopped selling a particular batch after, quote, a lot of people OD'd, unquote. Both studies underscore two important points. First, that distinctions between drug sellers and drug consumers are often muddy. Many people 
in both studies reported buying and selling from friends, from individuals who also use, or from individuals who they often use with. And second, both studies imply that removing access to trusted dealers may put clients at immediate risk of overdose. Indeed, for many individuals in this study, the inability to access a trusted supplier was reported as the specific event that precipitated their most recent overdose. The authors don't beat around the bush by saying, quote, put bluntly, arresting a dealer may directly contribute to overdose within their client population, unquote. The big takeaway from these studies is that the impact of drug policy, public health interventions, or law enforcement responses to substance use may have on the protective strategies that people who use drugs have created for themselves remains poorly understood. Without such understanding, good faith attempts to disrupt macro-level drivers of the opioid overdose epidemic, things like police sweeps, dealer takedowns, sudden pain clinic closures, may in fact only result in creating more harm among those who are already at risk. When it comes to addressing the opioid crisis, we would all do well to keep in mind the adage, you can't solve a problem you don't understand. That wraps another episode of the Aced It podcast. We thank you for listening to Aced It, where we translate science into sense. Also remember, you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language for all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.jcoinctc.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here and they will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. ACEDIT is part of the NIDA-funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN, through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. You can find ACEDIT on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, really anywhere that you'd normally find podcasts. Tune in again for more science and more sense with ACEDIT.